back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to have another very interesting show, because I have invited on, through the uh, good thinking and recommendation of my dear niece, Sophia, I will be speaking with Rabbi Chaim Miller on the subject of Kabbalah and Tanya. Well, what are these? This work really represents, you could call, the, the root of mysticism inside Judaism. And we'll get into specifics, of course, with the rabbi once he joins us. But every single tradition, every Eastern and Western holy spiritual tradition, has within it a mystical root. You could say really even a mystical core. And out of which comes, you could say, the highest teaching of that particular tradition. In Christianity, for instance, there are a number of sects that represent the inner teaching, if you will, of Christianity, which interestingly reaches back to Judaism. And in Islam, there is the Sufi tradition, which describes itself not as a religion whatsoever, but the heart of all religions. So what we find is that inside the heart of man and woman is this divine essence, this intelligence, which runs through all the human species, really, expresses itself in different particular local cultural forms that we refer to as a particular religion. Now, I'm not sure that the rabbi is going to agree with my, you could say, more anthropological and historical perspective, but that is how I understand, very much as I understand, the body of work that comes to us through the Masks of God series of Joseph Campbell, the famous comparative mythologist who spoke about the essence of mythology, of story, of narratives that are running through the South African tribes all the way to the Siberian flatlands. Everywhere we look, we see there's a sort of heroic narrative which speaks about our human experience and our journey as humans, our pathway toward greater understanding, toward greater patience, compassion, and perspective. And we go through a trip, we go through the woods, we go through the forest, we experience the difficulties and challenges of life, and we emerge on the other side, in a sense, as a heroic figure. And we are thereby enlightened, illuminated, and it is a path that all human beings go through in their particular way, per their particular culture and educational background. So I'm suggesting that there is this mystical heart at the root of human beings, out of which comes oftentimes a very beautiful expression in the form of a particular teaching and tradition, in this case, Judaism. And I am uh, waiting for the rabbi. Maybe he is just finishing davening or something, but he has not yet arrived on the air with me. So I am going to take a moment and uh, fill you with a touch of Mozart while I go see if I can find him somewhere on this larger temple. So bear with me. not yet 
into the universe that he should be coming to visit very, very shortly. And uh, in the meantime, let me just say a few words uh, about uh, Chaim Miller's background, which is really uh, rather extraordinary. He is, first of all, uh, British and was educated at the Haberdasher Askey School in London, and where he also studied medical science. Well, that was actually at Leeds University. At the age of 21, he first began to explore his Jewish roots in full-time Torah study. Less than a decade later, he published the best-selling Kol Menachem Chumash, Gutnik edition, which made over a thousand complex discourses of the late Lubavitcher Rebbe easily accessible to the layman. That is quite a feat, and one of the reasons we wanted to speak with him, because the Lubavitcher Rebbe is uh, in New York and beyond, is extremely well known as a great Rebbe, a great wise man, and to have uncovered his discourses is something certainly we want to bring to our audience here. The rabbi's 2011 com- compilation, The Lifestyle Books Torah, Five Books of Moses, Slager Edition, was distributed to thousands of servicemen and women in the United States Army. In 2013, he was chosen by the Jewish press as one of 60, quote, movers and shakers, unquote, in the Jewish world. He lives in Brooklyn with his wife, Chani, and seven children. So we see that the rabbi has been productive in many, many ways. So uh, I'll just say a word or two about the fact that uh, my own roots, while I am waiting for the rabbi, uh, are, of course, I believe you know, Jewish, as I make reference to it from time to time in my talks, etc., with all of you, Um, and uh, this is so funny, I'm getting, okay, all right, fine, I'm sorry, I'm getting different uh, messages from the rabbi, Um, not smoke signals, but let's see, little emails that are changing phone numbers, so if things hands here, no big deal, but Uh, Just to say, uh, my own background in uh, being born Jewish in New York City has been itself its own journey. And, uh, you know, you could call a culturally Jewish experience. And I'm going to play a little bit more Mozart for you now. Yes, I'm here, Mitchell. How are you? Shalom, shalom. Vusmaksam. Glad to have you. I have been on for the last five minutes, but you couldn't hear me. Oh, you but know what it rabbi, was? The number you gave me was not the number that showed up, hence okay. the confusion. So, well, as a rabbi, no I'm used to not being heard, so it's very normal for me. <laughs> Maybe this is a recapitulation of something that happened early in your life. Well, you know. <laughs> Um, no doubt that's something that has happened to us all, but Rabbi, I am glad to have you on right now on A Better World. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Surely. I was doing a bit of an introduction of the subject of the mystic 
the mystic heart of Judaism as expressed through Kabbalah and Tanya. And I generalized a bit also about all Eastern and Western traditions, all world traditions uh, that are wisdom traditions, whether they're called religions or not, have their own unique um, mystical expression and mystical essence, if you will. And I was really kind of rooting that essence in the heart of man and woman more than in some kind of external teaching. And then it gets expressed through the particulars of a religion, of a, a cultural form related to geography and climate and related to any number of different colorations of the environment. But the heart has a cosmic principle, if you will, that I feel that you speak to in the work that you've been doing. And I'd like to hear what you have to say about that thought. Yeah, that's a great thought. I mean, the mystical traditions all speak about how there's this direct experience I would call it an embodiment of the spiritual, of the divine within us. And we have direct access Mm. to that. It's not mediated through any authority or any synagogue or church or institution. And um, that's why mystical teachings are so powerful, because they speak to us directly. Uh, Mm -hmm. And um, many people also find that compatible with religion, that uh, their particular tradition or religious beliefs um, are really enhanced by a mystical appreciation of their religion because instead of it just being observance of tradition or this is the way we do it because it's the way we do it, uh, a greater mystical insight opens up and you really become nourished by it. That's what happened to me. I mean, I I, I was born Jewish. I grew up pretty secular, but I identified as Jewish. We did, uh, you know, some basic stuff. I had a bar mitzvah and, you know, uh, I did Yom Kippur and that kind of stuff. (laughs) Thank you. And, um, but it didn't really speak to me as anything particularly compelling. It was just our family traditions. There was, it was a certain weirdness really that we had as a people, but it, it didn't really speak to me until I was about 20. Uh, and I was in college and I discovered these myst- this mystical element to it. And then it all opened up. I, I can, uh-huh. yes, I understand. You know, in fact, in watching one of your, uh, videos, I I very much appreciated one of the points you made, which was, you were very funny. You you said, you know, Judaism and the study of Judaism and Torah can be very dry and boring. And only when I, meaning you in this case, uh, you know, found the mystical teachings, uh, did it start to become alive? And Right. I so know what you mean, and that's actually something that has kept me away from my religion of birth is right, right. tedium, utter yeah. tedium, and it's nothing I connect with at all. But indeed, hmm. very similar to you, but also different, but I did feel enlivened when I did, in my case, discover Kabbalah. And I felt Mm. that there was something here that goes beyond anything I saw in any other representation of of Judaism in my life. Um, Mm. So anyway, I I know that there's this enriching and enlivening quality. I'd love for you to make a distinction and help our audience understand the difference between the Kabbalistic teachings and the Tanya. The Tanya, of course, is not nearly as well-known. Um, hmm. It's much, much more, uh, how do I put it, and please correct the language, but it's almost sectarian in that it has to do with a very particular expression of Judaism, which you call as the larger umbrella, and within hmm. which are so many different rabbinical and wisdom traditions. So, enlighten us. Well, that's a great question. What is the difference between Kabbalah and the Tanya? The, the, um, essentially, they're very, very similar. They're both uh, mystical texts. They're both the suppressed voice of Judaism because the establishment never wanted people to have direct access to, to religious experience, to God, to spirituality, to find their soul. Now, who is they it w- that did not want that, Rabbi? The, the mainstream rabbinic authorities. They always saw this as a threat. 
mm-hmm. but they didn't say that because it sounded too childish. So what they said was, oh, the, this is too <laughs> delicate. The masses will, will uh, they'll, yes. they'll, especially, you know, this is beginning already in medieval times when there was, uh, we, we, you couldn't Google in those days and clarify something. Yeah? There was a, <laughs> a genuine concern of ideas being corrupted and like big ideas and little minds doesn't, don't always go together very well. But they, they, they yeah. didn't say uh, they didn't say we're scared of losing our power. But that was really what the case is. So, so any uh, mystical figure that really arose tended to be persecuted on a communal level for 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 centuries, really. And that is why you and I, um, both born into Judaism, never heard of this till adulthood, because it's still we're still yes. suffering from the kind of uh, marginalization of this wonderful wisdom. But um, exactly. In fact, I you know it was my understanding uh, that. The Kabbalah was not even supposed to be opened up until someone was in their perhaps early to mid 40s. They mm. had already had a family. They had mm. gone through, quote unquote, the marketplace. They had real life experience under mm. their belt before they were qualified in some perhaps emotionally mature way or right. intelligent way to gather and understand and absorb the teachings. Is that right. something you were familiar with, that idea? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with it as, uh, I mean, that was the tactic that was used to suppress it, one of the tactics. That was a tactic, got to it. To say that, oh, you know, only study it when you've read Keep every people other away. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, but, so um, yeah. So, so the Kabbalah era kind of came out of these very um, unusual figures, several dotted over, you know, from about the 1300s onwards, they appeared on the scene, uh, particularly in the 16th century in, in the Luria, past in Israel. Yeah, Isaac Luria. Yeah. And these were people with tremendously elevated states of consciousness that were able to kind of vibe the energies of the universe and put it into symbolic language. And mm-hmm. um, their whole thrust is that the world is saturated with energy, with divine energy, with spiritual energy, and they identified particular energies, and they showed how in every detail of the world this is present, in our physical bodies it's present, and then kind of worked up from the physical to different strata of, of spiritual existence, and described this very, very intricate, very beautiful picture of how these energies are flooding into the universe and they're embodied in us. And this is really a complete departure from um, the god of Maimonides, the famous medieval um, Jewish philosopher. Uh, His whole argument was that there's nothing you can say about God because anything you're going to say is human, and if it's human, it's not divine, so therefore just say nothing. And that rendered God and our connection with the infinite Impossible, really, because there's nothing you can say yeah. about him. There's nothing you, you, you could just pray to him, but you don't have any real relationship. And he's certainly not in the universe. Um, so the Kabbalah really came as a complete opposite to that, opposite thrust, that no, um, he, this energy is right here, and it's palpable. You can touch it. If you meditate for a little bit, you'll start to feel it. You might even start to see it. And mm-hmm. it's all about the imminent, the present. And the, the Kabbalists also went to the other extreme of Maimonides. Maimonides says there's nothing you can say about God. The Kabbalists says there's everything you can say about God. Let's use every <laughs> symbol we can imagine. And we're not scared that you're going to uh, uh, ascribe human attributes to God and, and, and do anything heretical. Because you know what? We trust your imagination. The imagination is the greatest a part of your soul which you're going to connect mm-hmm. to the infinite with. So, so the Zohar, which is a fundamental text of Kabbalah, which um, is of ancient origin and only began to kind of emerge a few hundred years ago, that's full of symbols. Everything's a symbol. Mm-hmm. And, and that's mm-hmm. what makes it so poetic and so beautiful, so relatable. Now, is that symbol that you're referring to in contradiction to the commandment, thou shalt have no icons? That is a great question. Uh, this was the struggle that Kabbalah really had because um, the, when you first read it, it does appear to be adulterous, really. It does appear to be ascribing very precise, very detailed characteristics to God, to the divine. 
And basically, you, you have to realize that this is meant on a symbolic level. It's also meant on a spiritual level. And um, the way the Kabbalists solve this problem is, in addition to God and the world, they talk about an intermediate state, and that's what they call emanation. Emanation is not God himself, but it's also not a creation. It's not a separate thing from God. They, the analogy that they use, the symbol is one of light. It's the light coming out of God. God's the infinite yeah. light, but out of him is coming different colors, different gradations of light, different frequencies, mm -hmm. different vibrational energies of light. That's all emanating out of him. And so when we use symbol, we're always talking about emanations. But the actual kind of essence of God himself is called the, the Ain sure. Shof, the infinite one, and that we don't really know anything about. So that's the way they, they kind of get out yes. of that problem. It's sort of like out of the absolute comes the relative, and mm. the relatives are the emanations that mm. are visible, that are sensorily available, if you will. Exactly. Okay. Please go on. So um, that was uh, the development of the Kabbalah, but that remained an elitist kind of group. It wasn't um, – people didn't know about it because it's in very complicated code very um, esoteric symbols, and it wasn't something that really anyone could well, digest. You've got the tree of life, so you've got yeah. the sephirot, you've got a whole mystical and uh, kind of developmental, it's, it's almost a psychology at the same time, you know, it has to do so much, if you think about it, with mm. personal development and, the, and being able to um, kind of embody certain attributes that mm. have a human and a divine quality, if you will. Mm. Would you say? Well, it, it's different levels uh, of the intelligence. The only thing I would say is slightly different is the psychology Please. part is more the Tanya, more the development of the Tanya. The original okay. Kabbalah is very technical. It's a bit like learning anatomy. Uh, uh, yes. When you learn, I was in medical school. I learned anatomy. You learn every single blood vessel and nerve in Latin. Sure. <clears throat> uh, it's just like learning a subway map. And Kabbalah can sometimes feel like a subway map without a lot of meaning. It's just a lot of technicalities. And so mm. the Hasidic movement, <clears throat> which began with a very interesting figure called Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov, uh, in the 18th century, and it really, the first manual of, of Hasidism was the Tanya, um, yes. that really came to like, well, let's cut out a lot of the jargon. We'll keep some of the jargon, so we, we need some symbols to relate to the stuff. But let's just yes. eliminate a lot of the technicalities and also we'll bring in a psychological element. We'll bring in the idea of human struggle. We'll bring in the oh. idea of, of um, uh, you know, the, um, the different tensions within the psyche and make this more relatable, more practical. So that is how the Tanya, which is like the Bible of the Hasidic movement, developed like a couple of hundred years so later out of the Kabbalah. Baal Shem Tov... Rabbi uh, said to have been the author of the Tanya. Um, no, he was the master of the master of the author of the Tanya. <laughs> oh, okay. it, uh, it was a kind oh, of. Oh, so the, it was the Rabbi Zalman. didn't write anything. Yeah, the Valshemtiv didn't write anything. Okay. He was a mystic, and he developed like a close yes. circle of mystics around him. And mm -hmm. then um, the the foremost. This was in South Poland. Uh, in the 18th century, and he had attracted like the brightest and, 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 the, and the most spiritually yes. inclined people of the time. But he was in the mountain. Yeah. He was in the mainstream area where all like the serious synagogues were and like the very uh, heavy kind of legalistic crowd. He was like in the mountains yes. and on the border of Turkey where all interesting characters were hanging out. So he he oh, would yeah. he was extremely. Uh, attuned to, to used to talk to animals. He would he would spend the, yeah. the week in the forest. He was that kind of guy, and he he kind of received. He studied the Kabbalah, but he uh, channeled it into a very much more kind of real and psychological doctrine, which then yeah. um, one of his most foremost disciples was his name was um, yeah, the Magid of Mizrich, which means like the yeah. preacher. Uh, and mm -hmm. Magid, uh, the high teacher, yeah, high teacher, and his mm -hmm. um, brightest student wrote the Tanya, which really is just a manual of the system which he'd learned from his master, which he'd received basically from his master. The master. 
Got it. And Got it's it. really so there's, there's nothing the really lineage. being written. Yeah, and there's nothing you know. There's not a lot of manuals in this kind of genre of rabbinic books. Most rabbinic books are about law. Like ninety-five percent of rabbinic books are just about law, ritual, yes. how to you know uh, keep the Sabbath and all that kind of stuff. And then you have a yes. very small amount, which is like uh, philosophical books, like Maimonides. Uh, and then you have the Kabbalistic literature, but very few books are like practical manuals. Like I'm getting up in the morning. How do I do this stuff? How do I yes. take uh, the symbols? How do I take what? What's the, what's the, how do I kind of what's the map of my soul? How do I do this on a practical level and, and a step-to-step guide? Very few books are written like that. And the Tanya really stands out as, as as really the only one of its caliber ever written. So let me ask you, I uh, spent some time at the tender age of 35 in the old (laughs) city, and I was uh, approached by a rabbi from New Haven, it ended up, uh, as I was on my way to the Wailing Wall uh, to see whether I wanted to study Torah. And my answer was actually, not really, but thanks for the offer. (laughs) But uh, he said, oh, your soul really would like this. It needs (laughs) nourishment. It needs education. I mean, what do you really know about your own roots? And I said, the truth is I don't know a whole lot, but, you know, I love Hebrew. And look, if you're going to be able to teach me Hebrew also, I'm on. And he said, <laughs> come with me. I made the guy's day. You know, so we hop on a bus, and he brings me to an Orthodox synagogue, uh, I mean, a yeshiva called Or Sameach. And mm. before you know it, I'm hanging out with a bunch of Jews. Scottish Jews were my roommates. And I'm getting an education that first night that I never had before in my entire 35 years of life. And they said I could oh. get bar mitzvah at the wall. It was all a very interesting experience. It really was. I ended up thinking I would stay a day or two, and I ended up staying um, over a month and getting huh. a, a very interesting education. I'm not going to go into that all right now, except to say that I got the feeling very much, Chaim, that the uh, orientation was very external it was rather mechanical in the keeping of the Sabbath, etc. And mm. there were laws. It's a it's a religion of law, as you were just saying, very mm. legalistic. I mean, in a sense, to become a rabbi is almost like to become a lawyer. And mm. I thought, gee, this is not that inspiring. I mm. don't quite get what all the excitement is. Now, I had lots of good experiences, and I don't want to take our time with those, but when I came back around, I had this sense that it was very legalistic and very external. And this point that you're making about the difference between Maimonides as you can say nothing about God because that would be to anthropomorphize him in a sense. Mm. Um, so better to say nothing and just follow the rules. And mm. the contradistinction with the Kabbalah, which was basically celebrating the beauty of the divine in the human body and earth herself. Mm. So we go from an external, separate sense of God to an absolutely opposite definition of God. Yes. Is that an accurate And also a different experience of Judaism. You see, the legalistic Judaism is is really, if it's devoid of Kabbalah, then it just emphasizes action over um, over consciousness. Sensibility. A Kabbalistic experience. Uh, yes. Judaism, or a Kabbalah experience yes. even. But that, that not, under... Not that, Jews, so, are you saying that, that Judaism then, in a sense, um, comprehends both opposite ends of the spectrum? Oh, yeah, there's not one Judaism. There's several Judaisms... <laughs> At least it, it okay. might all come from the same source, but in, in practice they're very, very different. A, a legalistic Judaism will emphasize, well, you've just got to follow the law. And if you have some good, good intention, that's great. But we'll really worry that you follow the law. Whereas a mystical Judaism will be, well, it's all about consciousness. Of course the law is yes. 
relevant because that's what Thank the Bible you. is, that's what the Talmud is. But what is the law? It's an co- opportunity to connect. It's like a connection ritual. It's yeah. a connection technology that's really there. But your consciousness is actually really much more important. And so uh, Tanya yes. quotes the mystics as saying that if you fulfill a ritual and you don't have consciousness, it's like a, a body without a soul. It's dead. Yes. So, right. so, so the Kabbalah an empty shell. Yeah. is always emphasizing the consciousness. Now, it didn't, yes. it didn't come to undermine the practice. And in fact, um, uh, you know, people who are of the Hasidic persuasion often will keep the law very precisely, but that it's not their vibe. It's not about just following rules. It's about yes. experiencing higher states of mind through the ritual and through um, studying these the symbols and being aware of these symbols as you're doing it. Interesting. So, yeah, so in other words, the person moving through the ritual is full of the spirit, mm. the life force, the energy yeah. that you were talking about pouring into the universe that the Kabbalists identified, right? And here we are with the Baal Shem Tov who's bringing that spirit back to life from what became, I mean, in my historical understanding, a rather humdrum, mechanical, you know, legalistic um, worldview and religion. And it was missing fire. And he brought that alive. So what happened? Because that was the uh, end of the 18th century, yes? And now, uh, to see the Hasidim around New York, one does not get reminded of the Baal Shem Tov, certainly in my experience. So right. it, it looks like right. it, it went back. It, like there's a default position where human beings sort of run out <laughs> of gas, you know. Yeah. Tell me, talk to me about what's actually happening. Well, you're very right. It, it's, there is a kind of default position. Now, I mean, the historical circumstances have a lot to do with it. Um, first of all, well, I think there's two elements. First of all, um, they, I once read a historian who wrote that um, all revolutions fail because either they fail or they become the establishment and they lose their revolutionary spark. Mm-hmm. So that kind of yes. revolutionary spark in Hasidism tended to get lost through the generations. And it has to be constantly yes. revived, revamped. You need living mystics to have disciples and, and, and uh, yes. have that kind of authentic vibe and that spiritual vibe. And then, you know, in, in, when it's merged with the religion, as it is in, in, you know, in, in Judaism, so the religion and the structures of religion and the people organizing religion can sometimes take over and kind of hijack it, and it loses its spot. Yes. So that happens sometimes. But also historically, you've got to realize that... Um, American orthodoxy is something which was doomed to failure. Um, it only in the 1940s, no one thought it was viable in America to, to be orthodox. So orthodoxy has been very defensive because of that and it erected a lot of walls and it's really been fighting a survival battle for the past mm-hmm. half century or so. So because it's been struggling to survive, it hasn't, you know, focused enough inwardly into these mystical teachings and, and uh, yes. you get what I'm saying. It, it's been busy with I something do. else. But I actually I think now is a time uh, it, it's that... Sur- it's it, dealing with survival and yeah. it can't tend to its own fires, right. if you will. But I think it's yeah. survived now. I think that battle has has, uh, has been won to some extent. There's a certain stability. There's a continuity. There's I mean, if you go to Crown Heights or Borough Park, you would surely say they have survived. Right, there's a certain sustainer, but that, that, that took decades to achieve. So and my, my feeling is that we're a kind of threshold when we can now go back to that kind of Baal, Baal Shem Tov moment when we can yes. you know, re-infuse ourselves with the spirit and, and, and return to the Kabbalah and return to this uh, very authentic uh, and, and symbolic and very powerful um, Kabbalah of, of experience. Absolutely. Well, well put. You know, I've got to say, uh, you're making me realize, Rabbi, that, you know, it's up to us. I mean, we're always right. looking for others to kind of lead the way, but, you know, we mm. are the leaders we are looking for, as they say, you know. And, and I'll so, say for my own why, journey, I, I, I came, right. I did not grow up um, like uh, 
observant and, and keep all the laws. Then I got into it in my 20s, and, and, and there was a certain phase when I felt like, well, you're saying that this community has become too legalistic and the, the mystical stuff which drew me in is there and practiced a bit, but it's not strong enough. It's not as strong as I would yes. like it to be. So I had two decisions. Yes. I had to, a decision. Either I'm going to just leave and say, okay, this was a mistake, or no, I'm going to become a leader and I'm going to say, you know what? I'm going to upgrade. Let's up the ante. Let's, let's get people more into this stuff. So I started translating yes. and teaching and writing books and videos and, 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 and uh, trying to promote the Kabbalistic ideas to adjust that status quo and also to make it generally available for, uh, obviously, it's of tremendous interest for people of all faiths and cultures. Uh, the, you know, the mystical teachings of the Kabbalah uh, is something we can all learn from. Absolutely. No, I, I so appreciate that point. It's like we have to rediscover the Baal Shem Tov inside of ourselves. And, yeah. uh, you know, the Balchuva movement reached you early, and you've been fanning <laughs> those flames ever since, you mm. know, which is fantastic. Uh, thank you. I, I really appreciate the, the larger perspective and the review. I, I'd love to take a, a deeper dive, if you will, which is to look at one of the fundamental uh, teachings of the Tanya. And when I was in the old city, actually, I had a chance to study with a Hasidic rabbi there as well, who uh, mm -hmm. that's when I first met the Tanya back, God Almighty, in the late mm -hmm. 70s. I guess I'm dating myself now. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm sorry. No, when was I there? 1989. Ah, oh, that's the memory. Mm -hmm. Okay, 1989. <laughs> a lovely, special year. And... Uh, I was introduced to something that I came across in some of your work, which is this notion of of Jews, as I heard it said, having two souls. Now, yeah. there's a whole other discussion to look at uh, why Jews would have two souls and other humans wouldn't, but let's at, least, at least look at the subject of the two-soul question. Could you uh, explore that with us? Yeah, I mean, it does yeah. speak about Jews, but we've got to remember this book was written just for a Jewish community. There was no one else really in the picture at the time. So, uh, yes. Uh, but of course, it's it's true to a very great extent of all humanity. What the two souls mean is that um, it's kind of revision of the Talmudic idea of having two inclinations. The Talmud says that we're kind of neutral. You know, if you want to ask the question, and this is one of the fascinating questions which the Tanya really addresses, is, am I good? Or am I bad? Am I at heart mm -hmm. selfish or am I at heart, you know? So the Talmud would say, really, you're neutral. And you have, like, two inner voices, or you have, like, your inner demons, and you have your inner angels, and they're kind of competing for your attention. That's the Talmud's way of putting it, which is a quite a kind of straightforward way. But the Tanya actually comes and, and, and frames it quite differently. And the Tanya says, actually, you're not good. You're actually quite selfish. That is your base, um, your base functioning. And... He describes that as the animal soul, which basically means uh, the part of your spirit which is close uh, to your body, closest interaction and embodiment inside the physical body. Uh, the mm -hmm. Bible says that the soul's in the blood, so he quotes that idea. It's like, it's like this soul's like fl it's flooding through your veins. And that spirit's actually quite selfish. It's funny to think of a selfish spirit, but it's an energy. Uh, in the Kabbalah, it's called the Kalipah which means like the shell, it hides God. And um, basically, an experience or any activity or really any thought, anything in the universe can either bring to light the oneness of everything and the divine presence and everything, or it can conceal that. So it's not really good and evil here. It's more kind of truth or concealment. And yes. the animal soul, which is flooding through your veins, is a concealment energy. And what it basically tells you is that you're not one with the universe, that the universe is not here to help you, that actually you're a, a fragment which has been disconnected from everything else, and therefore you've got to do everything you can to accrue personal benefit because no one's really here to help you, which is a concealment of the truth because the truth is that we're all one. We're all part of the one. We're subsumed in the one. We're all fundamentally interconnected. We, we gain when we have a win-win mentality. That's the truth. But the Kalipa energy of your animal soul is basically it's like a survival instinct. Uh, it's basically yes. constantly telling That's you to where be I was selfish. Going with this. Yeah, yes. and so it's not really good and evil. It's selfish or or um, 
self or universe? Am I doing this for myself or am I doing it for the universe? So the animal soul keeps telling you to act for yourself. But then we have this other um, spiritual entity, which is described in the Bible. The Kabbalists see it in the biblical story that God blew in uh, the soul of Adam. And um, in the biblical account, obviously, when God creates the world, he says, let there be light. Let there be this. Let it be that. He speaks. Um, mm-hmm. But when he gives you your soul, he blows. Now, speaking, we could speak for five hours. We're not going to get tired because it's not that tiring to speak. But if you start blowing, in two minutes, you're going to be worn out because you're kind of getting your innards and, and, and giving your <laughs> innards and squeezing it out. So the, the yeah. symbol of God blowing which again, the Kabbalists taking all these symbols quite literally, is that God kind of took his innards, so to speak, and put them in you and me. And that is um, uh, what he calls a spark of the divine, or a piece of God, he calls it, um, which is a very radical idea, because normally uh, in theology and religion, we want to make a sharp distinction between God and everything that's not God. (laughs) And here he comes along and says, really, and this is the core of the mystical uh, vibe that God's within you. You're embodying yes. a spark of God, a piece of God. And that has to penetrate. That's your higher consciousness, and it's accessible all times. And your challenge is to, to render higher consciousness tangible and real and let that penetrate through the animal soul and let it displace the animal soul, the selfish, fragmented mentality, the lower consciousness. So really, your life is always a struggle between higher consciousness and lower consciousness. That's what it will build Mm-hmm. Beautiful, beautiful. I'm going to reframe this a little bit from my point of view, since I have no uh, affinity necessarily to being religiously correct. I'm going <laughs> to be biologically okay. correct. And, that okay. is, and you, actually, you actually hit on where I was going with it, which is this idea of selfish. Is, there's a sort of a moral judgment in that. And um, since you said that there is a neutrality here, I'd like to more return to that sensibility. So mm. the fact is that to survive, we have to think about ourselves. This is yes. a biological function. It's not a so-called spiritual one, unless you want to separate spiritual from biological, which, by the way, in my worldview, I don't do. But mm. it's just a different function for the larger spiritual journey of the being. So mm. I need, we need, that, that survival characteristic so we can live, to tell the yeah. story, you know, to, to make the narrative, actually. So there's not, nothing bad, there's nothing selfish about it, except in as far as, you know, when you fly on a plane and the stewardess says to you, put on your own oxygen mask before you put it mm-hmm. on your child. You know, it's yeah. that same idea. In other words, you have to be able to survive in order to help others. Yeah. And you see the same idea in Buddhist thought, etc., other, mm-hmm. other world teachings, because mm. there's something, I'm, uh, my view is that it's biologically sensible and accurate, and that's why it is what it is. And then, of course, no, of we've course. got yeah, the higher no, brain true. functions but, yeah, all, all that bring the, us all, into all, the higher realms. Yeah, please well, what we're trying to say is that any experience, even a very basic one, can either be awakened or not. Yes. So you have unawakened yes. consciousness, which, which tends to the, to the self, or awakened consciousness. So when you, you do basic, even survival functions and eating and, 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 and having sex, whatever we're doing in the physical world, that can, there's nothing selfish about that. I mean, it could be selfish if you're being nasty to another person. Yeah. There's nothing intrinsically bad about that. It, but right. we can awaken it to something higher. We have the ability to yeah. align it to, to, to a higher consciousness. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's the ideal. I, I really appreciate the way you're framing the whole conversation regarding the, essentially, the cultivation of consciousness, distinct mm. from, and not unrelated to, but distinct from a body of teaching that has people live a certain lifestyle. I mean, in fact, it, it kind of raises a question. I'm, I'm really enjoying speaking with you, Rabbi, because I don't get a chance to Thank speak you. to rabbis that much these days, and um, I get to 
knock around some of the thoughts that have been kind of going through me. You know, you've got halacha on one hand, the yeah. the teaching of principles, and you've got minhag on the other. And and I keep seeing when I look around the Jewish community uh, a depth and and focus on custom and minhag that is. Uh, seems to be more important than the fundamental principles about which all of this is concerning. Yeah. That shows up in any number of different choices, from clothing to food to all of the enshrinements and details of daily living. Now, Mm. is this because I'm missing something or because... I'm right. There is a uh-huh. uh, an eclipsing, if you will, of the local customs that have, in a sense, become more evident than the principles underlying the teachings. Yeah, there, there's always that problem. You, uh, you called it before the default position that when we're dealing with – listen, it goes back to the Bible. It's not just custom. It's not even rabbinic. It goes back to the Bible. What, what's the message of the Bible? There's one God. But he's worshipped through these very physical precepts. All the commandments written in the Bible are actually physical. They're all rituals. They're not really mm-hmm. theological positions. And so the monotheistic idea, at least in, in the Jewish interpretation of the Bible, is that there's this invisible God, but we worship him with very tangible acts. So that, that's, a difficult, that's a difficult combination of, yes. of um, taking a very spiritual idea and a very intangible idea and connecting to it through something very tangible. And the obvious um, flaw in that, not that the Bible's flaw, but the obvious uh, human flaw that's going to play into that is that we're mm-hmm. just going to focus on the tangibles and forget the intangible. And like the, the whole mm-hmm. point of these rituals, which were, were supposed to point to the one, point to the infinite, point to the spirit, we're just going to forget the pointers and just look at, look at the, the kind of the shell. So yes. uh, there is that, that yes. tendency, and that is why the, you know, the Kabbalah is so desperately needed, and, and, and there's a lot of work to be done. Right, exactly, exactly. That's the infusing of the spirit, and of course, your work. Tell me a little bit more about your work in the community, and do you do outreach to the non-Jewish community, or is that not of interest? How do you see the work you're doing as having kind of larger systemic holistic mm. application well I, I i feel like i'm a revealer of secrets i feel mm-hmm. that through my training and uh, background and, and and you know being exposed to these texts i have access to to information and guidance for the spirit uh, of all humanity uh, which hasn't really surfaced yet uh, at least not significantly, and so mm-hmm. um, I, I have a very disruptive energy. I like to I like to uh, make revolutions and, and ruffle people up, mm-hmm. just my nature. And so, combining that together of sublime wisdom, not yet very available, and let's shake things up. So that, that that's what I like to do. I most of my work <laughs> has been like involved that. in, in uh, translating this stuff which is not available and making it available to, in, in kind of normal, accessible English. Um, and, uh, but I teach, I speak, I, I, uh, I teach on the Internet and try and um, both in the Jewish community, uh, which is really my main focus because that's where, just where my work is. But um, yeah. my passion really is that uh, these are teachings for all humanity and, and they need to be shared with mm-hmm. all humanity. And, and I, I'd like to find mm-hmm. more opportunities to do that. Um, maybe in the form of a book, or in, I'm not exactly sure what that will be, but I, I definitely um, feel that you know when 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 American Americans think about spirituality, we first we straight away go to Buddhism. Um, <laughs> you think Americans think that first? <laughs> well, what, what 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 is? Uh, I don't know what Americans you know, but. <laughs> What is the, I mean, maybe I mean, my you pick, friends. But, you pick up the spiritual yeah. literature. Go into Barnes and Noble, yes. pick up the spiritual literature. It, it, it's really Buddhism, or or some some you know, it, it's the Eastern religions really are where people go. For, they they see their spirituality. I mean, it is. Yes. I'm not saying it's not, but that that that's what oh, kind no. of infiltrated our culture. Yes. 
and yes. um, you know the pe- people who are uh, interested in spiritual teachers. So most, a lot of them are coming from the angle. We don't have a lot of contribution from the Kabbalah in in that mm-hmm. uh, kind of main sphere. I don't think uh, you know on Oprah's uh, soul super soul thing. I don't think she's ever had a. Uh, she inter- inter- interviews a spiritual teacher every week. I don't think she's ever had anyone. Um, mm-hmm. So that just it just shows you that it's uh, this particular um, source of wisdom hasn't really surfaced, and I think that's something like, I, that revolution is something I'd like my my soul to be part of in this lifetime. Mhm, mhm, interesting. You know, I, since you mentioned Buddhism, I I know that from my own path because I I found. Uh, it didn't feel like there was anything for me in Jewish mm. teaching. Mm. It just didn't mm. appeal to me at all. And I first went to yoga at the tender age of 14. And, you know, transcendental meditation by age 17 and mm. Buddhism by 18, <laughs> you know. And I've mm. been around the world, actually, in Buddhist centers and Taoist centers and mm. Hindu centers and all of that. Well, mm. also, it should be said, you know, uh, Orsamech as well, along the path. Mm. Uh, but my spirit was way more galvanized by the Eastern traditions. I just felt them to be much more yeah. kind of practical, humane, and I don't know, they just spoke to me. And I mean, I can step back, and I've also read The the Jew and the Lotus as well, where mm. the Dalai Lama invited um, leading Jewish thinkers um, to learn about how Jews have survived, because after all, the Tibetans got kicked out of Tibet. And mm. he turned to leaders in the Jewish community for some answers about how mm. to live in exile, you know, and uh, the diaspora. So there's a really interesting relationship. But, you know, we call it Buddhist, you know. That's how kind of similar. uh, There's a lot in (laughs) Right, Jubus, exactly. There's a lot in common between the two that is not recognized. And I I like to celebrate the commonality while, by the Mm. way, appreciating the distinctions, you know. Yeah. Um, I still wish Jewish food was a little bit more tasty in the Chinese. I know that when the Chinese <laughs> decide to go to Jewish restaurants, we're making progress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we haven't done much on the food front. You know that when you walk yeah, into right. Whole Foods and you go to the, the Jewish section and all there is is gefilte fish in jelly <laughs> in a jar. In every other the aisle, the, yeah, the food is delicious. It's like That's all we have to exactly. eat. I think I'll go for some curry now, you know. <laughs> but uh, um, but your point is that uh, is well made that there isn't a lot uh, that is in common parlance with mm. in respect to the higher level of Jewish teachings. That I happen to hang out in some circles where Kabbalah is actually very much embraced, mm-hmm. but not Tanya. Yeah. Mm, oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. In my, you know, I I hate using the phrase New Age, but I guess Mm. it is not unrelated, you know, to my... Mm. Let me put it this way. Our identity is not with any religion at all, although most of my friends are of Jewish background, just as myself. Uh, But they don't find home in Judaism. Mm. If anything, they will find connection through... Kabbalah. Mm. That's really, really yeah, I can true. I completely relate to that. Yeah. yeah. And you're bringing I, I, another dimension here, forward mm. here, Chaim, and I appreciate that, which is the Tanya, which is yet another, you know, dive into uh, the space of the mystical teachings mm. uh, that uh, came out of that same Jewish soil. It's mm. really interesting. Now, when you said practicality, if I may just keep you for another moment, yes, there was something I remember I was bringing up when I told you about time in Jerusalem, that when I was in one of the uh, celebrating Shabbos with, uh, forget the name of the area, very, very holy area of the old city, yeah. 
uh, there was the ritual of when you wake up in the morning that you touch ground with one foot instead of the other. You wash one hand first instead of the other. And it was so down to a level of precision that on one hand it was remarkable that someone thought through a sort of inner logic that gave rise to this perspective. Mm. So I'd love to hear if you're talking about some of that integration of the mystical and the practical showing up like that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I mean, I try not to be OCD about these things. The uh, there's a lot of rules. It certainly and, uh, invites them, doesn't it? Yeah, it can turn into that. But when you do yeah. it right, you can really integrate um, the the very. I mean, rituals are powerful. They they really affect. Um, yes. Our psyche very profoundly, and if you can, empty rituals are not powerful. They're just they're meaningless, and they're they're really corruptive for the soul at the end of the day. But um, when you can bring um, higher states of mind and and direction and purpose into those rituals and really integrate it, they can be very very powerful. And that was really the success of the Hasidic movement, uh, which culminating in book form at least in the Tanya is how to. Uh, approach the rituals not as dry, not as legalistic, but as fluid, as energizing, as uplifting. And, and uh, it takes years of practice, really, to work on it uh, fully. But um, it's something that I think in my life I've succeeded in to some extent. And uh, I don't think – I totally understand your sentiment of just seeing these people following rules. And I also found, as a, as a child, orthodoxy very unappealing and just a bunch of judgmental – rigid OCD people. That's what I thought it was. But now I'm an Orthodox <laughs> rabbi. So how did that happen? Because so, I'm not just really a regular Orthodox yeah. rabbi. I'm really a Kabbalistic rabbi, sure. but I believe sure. in the synthesis of that spirit and that consciousness with ritual, with deed. And, and, and kind of law can be redeemed if you don't look at it as law. The Kabbalists always translate you know, the word mitzvah in Hebrew, mm-hmm. which means normally translated as commandment. The Kabbalists translate it as connection. Yes. Oh, Connection ritual. You're looking at it Beautiful. as, oh, oh, it's a commandment. Someone's bossing me around, telling me what to do. There's this angry God who's going to punish me. If you look at it like that, it's mm-hmm. very unappealing. But if you look at it as the, these are just gifts, the opportunities to connect, and they're embodying different energies, and each particular ritual has its own contours, and it has its own spirit, and it has its vibe, mm-hmm. and it connects with a different part of my psyche. And you're looking at it from that richer perspective – then, you know, you can be quite, you're not looking at it as being observant and following rules. You're looking at it as, as, as nourishing the spirit through a faith sure. of disciplined and precise tradition. Absolutely. That, that's how no, I've that's come to it, and well, I try well, to practice yeah. it. Well, I don't always succeed. Sometimes uh, you, you can't always be in a high state of mind, and that's a struggle. But that's definitely what I, I teach, I aspire to, and try and find the tools that will, will lead us in that direction. Yes. Yes, absolutely. No, I appreciate that. You know, uh, we're just about running out of time here, but I, I'm kind of remembering a uh, story that I've always appreciated, written uh, in a book by a psychotherapist. And I'm laughing to myself now that I'm remembering the name of the book, which is called If You See the Buddha on the Road, Kill Him, which <laughs> is a, uh, it's an old Buddhist idea of don't worship somebody called and referred to as the Buddha. You're looking at mm. an inner self. That's really what mm. it is. And, you know, destroy mm. the outer form, so to speak. But mm. in that book, Chaim, he tells a story, Sheldon Kopp, his name is a nice Jewish fellow, uh, about um, the Baal Shem Tov. And it's oh. about two young yeshiva bochum who want to be near him and well, one did, and the other said, "Why? He's just getting up and 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 going about his day. Uh, kind of. Why don't you leave him alone? Leave him in peace." He said, "No, you don't understand." The other, the other mm-hmm. student said, "All I care about. I don't care about being in synagogue with him. I don't care about getting a, a blessing from him. I just want to watch him tie his shoes." <laughs> okay. So I, I just always appreciated that story, and it kind of speaks so loud to me that consciousness is consciousness, 
And when we see it and we feel it and others, we celebrate it. And mm. it's, it's, it's love. It's like mm. unbridled love. And we want to be in the presence of it. And mm. it's free of the outer forms. It's an mm. inner life that we all seek and want to be nourished by. So I so appreciate all that you shared today with our audience. It's, uh, it's beautiful, beautiful material. And I'd love Thank to uh, ask you, uh, share, if you would, your, uh, your website and any contact oh, yeah. information. And also just say your closing words, if you would, to our audience, whatever you feel you would like them to carry inside them in their hearts as they, they leave today's uh, dialogue. Um, okay, well, just contact information. You could reach me directly if you want to email me. That's my name, Chaim Miller, C-H-A-I-M, Miller, M-I-L-L-E-R, at gmail.com. Um, all of my books are available on uh, the publisher's website, which is it's quite complicated, this one. It's called Kol Menachem, K-O-L. Kol means voice, K-O-L, and then the Hebrew name Menachem, M-E-N-A-C-H-E-M, Kol Menachem. Dot com, or you could go to Amazon and just put my name in, Chaim Miller, and most of my books will come up there. Especially check out the most recent book, which is called The Practical Tanya, where I've taken this 200-year-old text and um, uh, adapted it into a contemporary language and, and you know, in a kind of modern, accessible spirituality. Although it does have the whole, it does have the original text there. It's a translation and commentary. And um, message. What can I say? Um, the the essence. Why don't of, you? Of the I mean, Tanya, out of those thousand complex discourses of Lubavitcher, yeah. who we didn't speak much about yeah. at all, I no, said a couple of words before you came on. Uh, <laughs> share one story, if you would. Oh, about the Rebbe. Yeah, well, uh, he um, was a great integrative thinker. In other words, yeah. he always felt that there's um, good in everything. We have to find that good and we have to bring it on board. So he, um, he would often you know, say, well, you know, what, what, where's the gold in this story? If you, um, if you see, uh, sometimes he would tell the story of this thief. Who, what can we learn from a thief? Oh, we can learn that you know, the thief gets up early because he wants to do his work. And the thief works <laughs> very, very hard. And he plans. And he would like to make this whole picture of what he can learn from the thief. Because every experience in the world has a spark of wisdom. It has a nugget of goodness. And you can learn from it. Sometimes you have to learn the yeah. mirror because it's something very, very bad. But basically, um, um, go, he, he, he based it all on the Kabbalistic idea that there's a spark in everything. And so when any, any yes. person comes your way, you ask yourself, Where's the spark in that person? Where's the spark in this meeting? How can I redeem the purpose in this, in this moment, in this second, in this experience? Everything we see and hear, we find the spark, constantly looking for the spark, looking for the gold, looking for the oneness, looking for the purpose. Mm, beautiful. Rabbi Chaim Miller, I want to just thank you again for being a guest on A Better World today with me and uh, sharing your thoughts and your feelings and your wisdom. It's, uh, thank you. Thank you so you. much for a great discussion. And keep okay. up your amazing work. <laughs> thank you. Doing Shodata some fantastic ba. stuff. <laughs> thank you. Shalom, shalom. We'll talk another time. Shalom. Thank you. Bye-bye Sure. Rabbi Chaim Miller, wow, that was a lot of fun for me, I got to tell you. I really don't get a chance to talk to enough rabbis. I really, I really do enjoy it, and I feel that there's a, when they're open, like today's rabbi, Chaim Miller, there can be a lot of imaginative growth, wanderings, and evolution that can occur. And uh, I always like to kind of let out the waistline of the conversation to expand to being rather global instead of local. And he was right there with me to to play that game. So I'm I'm grateful for it. So listen, thank you all for joining. If you do not yet get our newsletter, make sure to go to triple w dot 
abetterworld.tv. It's free. It announces our weekly radio show and the guests, as well as our weekly uh, television show, which is on every Monday evening at 7 p.m. on uh, Manhattan Community Cable Television. It's been on every week as uh, public service since 1993. This month, actually, I just realized, March of 1993, I began hosting and producing A Better World TV. So become part of it. Also recall that we are a nonprofit 501c3, so your donations, your contributions, your investment in A Better World really does help us be sustained and uh, we totally, totally appreciate it. We've also got uh, room for interns, whether that is video editing or administrative or social media building. So please let me know and feel free to contact me at 212-420-0800 or mjr at abetterworld.net mjr at abetterworld.net and also let me know your thoughts and feelings and comments about the interviews that you have heard here on a better world it's always such a pleasure for me to hear from you all that's all this is mitchell j rabin for a better world and i look forward to seeing you all next week <laughs>